On this edition of Larry the Golf Guy, we talk with Paul Levy, who um, served as the 40th president of the PGA of America. Uh, Paul had a uh, long career uh, as not only a um, director of golf at various locations, but also in the um, club operations business, working for the um, Sunrise Company and overseeing properties um, in a number of Western states for many years. Um, But um, during the course of that, he was active in the Southern Texas PGA section and the Southern California PGA section before ultimately focusing on um, golf administration in the National PGA Organization, and as I say, ultimately becoming president of the PGA of America. Um, And um, a couple of interesting um, things in particular during his tenure as president in 2016 and 2018, um, he played a significant role in moving the PGA of America headquarters from Florida to Frisco, Texas. Also um, was heavily involved with the Ryder Cup task force that was formed during that time to try to improve our um, uh, country's record in that event and um, many other things that we touch on in a wide-ranging conversation. So up next, uh, the 40th president of the PGA of America, Paul Levy, here on this episode of Larry the Golf Guy. Well, welcome to another edition of Larry the Golf Guy. And I'm really pleased today to welcome to the show Paul Levy, who's had uh, quite a career in golf, um, both um, at various clubs in the industry and, you know, of course, in the administrative side at the section level and national level of PGA. We'll chat about all that. Paul, thank you so much for making time to join with us today. Oh, my pleasure, Larry. Great to be here. So let's maybe just kind of to give people a little context about yourself, go back to the beginning a little bit. And I know you were uh, born in New Orleans and uh, a proud Tiger LSU, which we'll get to, but um, just sort of maybe chat a little bit about um, how you were first introduced to golf. Yeah, great, great question. Um you know, growing up in New Orleans, my father was an insurance agent. And of course, every insurance agent played golf, but my <laughs> father, my father had a bad back. Uh, in fact, he couldn't, you know, when they drafted him in World War II, they wouldn't take him because he was 4F and he ended up joining the reserves and retired as a major. Wow. So, you know, I look back at my background, um, you know, growing up in New Orleans, I grew up at, uh, you know, public golf courses played golf in high school, kind of uh, organically took up the game um, because a friend of my brother, we moved into some apartments while we were building our house on the lake. So we lived in an apartment for about a year and a good friend of my brother from high school played golf and he had wiffle balls and we would hit wiffle balls in the courtyards of the condos we lived in. Okay. And I, of course, uh, you know, loved playing putt-putt as a kid. When I was four and five years old, we'd go every Sunday. That was family dinner day. And we'd go to a place out on Veterans Highway, which was on the west side of New Orleans. I lived on the east side. And okay. it had a little putt. It had the original, remember the old putt-putt? Sure, the of course. Yeah, they're all over the place in the south. Oh, I remember. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
I remember Harrelson won the championship one year. The guy that pitched for the uh, who was it? He was a great pitcher, and then he was a good golfer. You know, there was two brothers, Harrelson. I think one was Bud. Oh, Bud, Bud, Bud Harrelson. You mean Bud Harrelson and Ken, oh no, or Ken Harrelson? Ken Harrelson. Well, yeah, he was a I good. Remember. He was a White Sox announcer because I was in Chicago for a while, and of course, he played for the Red Sox. I grew up in New England, and he was a good golfer. You're right. Well, and he did something with this. They used to do that putt putt for the fun of it in the putt putt championship. And the reason I share that is I look back at 13 or 14 years old, and you know, I'd been playing golf for a year or two, and you know, my dad got me a, a pass where I could play at the City Park Golf Club, and. uh you know, for me, I look back and go, wow, I always liked playing putt-putt as a kid, and I never really connected the two. So, yeah, you know, moved to the apartments or the condos, had a good friend of my brother. I started playing, and from the day that I hit my first shot, I knew it's what I wanted to do. I nagged my father to get me a set of junior clubs. Yeah. Uh, I remember 1972, I had a set of Ram junior clubs, and I thought yeah, I was sure. rocking and rolling. Oh, wow. Um, and obviously, you know, cause we'll get to LSU in a second. You played on the team there. And if you're playing on a golf team in the sec, that's, you've got some talent. So, I mean, did you play before college? Did you play much junior golf? Did you play in high school at all or any kind of competitive stuff before getting to college? I did, you know, I was a good junior player. I wasn't great. I wasn't like, you know, I had a good buddy, Tommy Moore, who was, top 10 in the country every year, uh, played at Oklahoma state. And so I had a, uh, a scholarship offered to Wharton junior college. Uh, our golf coach was Dave Williams, son, Joel, oh, Dave, of course, right. you know, has the Houston. record. Yeah. Yep. 16 national championships, right. still the record for the most national championships in any sport. Yeah. Um, you know, so Joel was our coach and then I, um, uh, had a scholarship, went there for a year, but I missed LSU. I missed my friends. I wanted to be back in Texas. I mean, in Louisiana. Yeah. And so I had to, I gave up my scholarship, transferred my sophomore year, walked on and made the team. Um, wow. But, you know, uh, being a new Orleans boy, LSU is where you wanted to be. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, as I said, I mean, SEC is pretty, uh, pretty competitive. That And you played for three years, right? At LSU? I did. I did. I was a member of the team for three years. I was never in the top five, uh, you know, played some events, but uh, for me, golf was just my life. You know, from the time I started playing when I was a young man, when I first hit the first golf shot, I knew this is what I was going to do. And, uh, you know, my years at LSU were a blast. Uh, we had some really good teams. You know, we had um, uh, when I was, let's see, my first year, Wayne DeFrancisco was our captain. In fact, I got to see Wayne a lot more the last 10 or 15 years. He won our national club pro. Uh, and then I hosted the senior club pro in 2008 and 2010 for the first time outside the state of Florida at Toscana and in Indian Wells. Wow. And so uh, Wayne stayed at my house and, you know, Wayne, when he didn't make the tour, he, he was a great teacher, a really good player. Uh, so, um, that was 1979 when I transferred to LSU. Got it. And I okay. And then I graduated in 83. So I was on the right. five-year plan. <laughs> and and it sounds like you were pretty committed. You knew golf was going to be a career. Um, did you kind of just making a little more specific out of it? I mean, did you know, gee, I don't know if it's going to be as a playing career. Did you kind of know that you wanted to go out and try to do something as, as a club pro or kind of what was your thinking as you were graduating LSU? 
Well, yeah, graduating high school, you're still having delusions of grandeur. I want to play the tour and be a tour player. By the time you graduate LSU, you know, uh, Fred Couples was still shooting 65 if I shot 75 or whatever the case may be. Right. And the point I'm getting at is by then I kind of knew that my future was going to be being a PGA professional in the club business. But early on, I kind of took a liking to not just the golf professional side, playing, teaching the game, uh, you know, operating the pro shop. But I early in my career, I was involved in facilities that were startups from the scratch. So I took a liking early on to golf course construction and building clubhouses and total operations. So I was fortunate, I guess you could say, in that early, early in my career, I had two startup projects from scratch that I think really set the course for my career. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I know, you know, you uh, further on in your career, you end up, you know, going to Royal Oaks and Houston um, and and you're, of course, in the Southern Texas PGA um, section and do a bunch there. But that's a few years down the line. So what, what were these projects? So what were your kind of first positions after yeah. college and, and maybe talk about that and how you got started? Well, my first job. Um, I graduated LSU in 83, and I remember I was night skiing in March uh, with my fiance at the time, who became my wife, and I broke my left wrist. I skied mm. kind of, it was Beach Mountain, North Carolina, night skiing, and I kind of went off of a run that was mm -hmm. kind of where the lift house was, mm -hmm. and I did the... Uh, wide world of sports disaster, put my left <laughs> hand out in front of me and compound yeah. fractured my left hand. Oh, boy. And uh, boy. so I, I remember getting the cast off. I played in the state amateur and I knew I needed to go do something. I mean, I need, you know, you got to make a living. I was out of school and I had a chance to go talk to Mike Laddick, who was a PGA professional at Riverlands, which is in Laplace. That's okay. halfway from Baton Rouge to New Orleans, okay. which of course – by then, I was living at home with my parents because of my. I'll never forget my take home money. Uh, gross was seven hundred, and I got paid once a month. They took out my lunches and my health insurance allotment. I had to pay. I took home about four hundred and fifty a month, so I didn't have enough money to even have an apartment. Wow. So I would I would go back and forth to staying with my folks in New Orleans or my girlfriend in Baton Rouge, who was still at LSU, and so. I would either spend nights there or back home going back and forth. Um, and, you know, Laplace, it was a, a very blue collar club. I'll never forget the dues in 1983 was $52.50 a month. Wow. And, you know, <laughs> I, it was it, it was a deal where there was a head golf professional, Mike Laddick. I'll never forget. Mike's still around. In fact, he's, he's in South Texas now. It was Louisiana then. And, uh, you know, First thing in the morning, you get there at 630, you pull the pull carts out of the golf shop. Yeah. You pull the golf carts yourself. Yeah. You get the cart, you get everything set up. It was, uh, like I said, a very blue collar working man's club. And uh, so I did that for six months. And I'll never forget a sales rep, Gil Barnett, who is, God rest his soul, he passed away. His son, Gil Jr., is still a sales rep in South Texas. And Gil... Gil had the best lines. He had Pickering, if you remember the famous oh, Pickering sure, sure, shirt. Absolutely. Yeah, I do remember them. Sure. You know, they they between Pickering, Sahara, Izod, you know, Munzingware, those were the big shirt lines back Yeah. Then, oh, know? yeah. I remember all those, the penguin. That's <laughs> where I remember. So so Gil comes in the shop and he goes, What do you, you know, he comes to my shop in Louisiana and says, You really need to move the Houston. I says, There's there's not a lot of growth in the business here. 
you know, business is big in Houston, lots of clubs. I'll help you find a job. So sure enough, the next time he came to town to see us, he said, hey, there's a club called Quail Valley. Bill Hill's the pro. They're looking for someone. I've told them about you. Give them a call. And I moved to Houston, and that was February of 84. And uh, and then, of course, I my next job, I had a, a gentleman that was a counselor at golf camp I used to go to when I was 15, 14 you know, growing up in New Orleans, but it was in right. Baxter, Texas, Central okay. Texas, by, by Austin. Yeah. So we became friends. Well, Mark had gotten his tour card. He lost his tour card in 85, and he called me up and said, hey, I got the head pro job at Great Hills in Austin. I want you to come be an assistant for me. He says, I got, you know, I've never – he worked in a shop, but he said, you know, you've been working in clubs now two or three years. And another gentleman who was there when I got there, a guy named Jimmy Terry – and we became best friends and they're good friends to this day. In fact, when I was an officer, we hired Jimmy to oversee properties for the PGA. And wow. Jimmy was actually overseeing the Frisco project until two months ago when he left the PGA to go do a new project on his own in Central Texas. Wow. So I moved to Texas in 84 and kind of organically became, you know, got the deal where we were building Cypresswood Golf Club. It was my first head pro job. It was under construction, 1987. And I really enjoyed getting to know about golf course construction, learning about course construction, learning how to do a complete performer for a project from scratch, overseeing, uh, you know, aspects of the clubhouse construction, the golf course construction, setting up the operations. And it, as I look back, it really changed my career because uh, I'd say when I took that job, I went from being not just a PGA professional and an operator, but also got into the development side, which really stuck with me throughout my career. Yeah, I really did because, you know, again, I kind of picked up the thread when in, in looking at, at your career, um, preparing for our discussion when you went to Royal Oaks in 99 and what was striking. And it sounds like you had had experience already in this is, you know, it was more than just being a director of golf or a head pro. I mean, you were general management manager and, and I know starting then you started getting involved with sunrise where you had a long career um, overseeing properties. So it's interesting. So you were really for, for uh, early on, you had multiple hats in your career. It sounds like. I did. I was, a, you know, I became a developer operator, you know, I, um, and I really enjoyed the whole from scratch. I mean, building the course, who doesn't want to be out in the dirt, you know? And of course, you know, Toscana, we worked with Jack Nicklaus. Uh, we had Red Rock in Vegas. Palmer was the designer in Houston. Fred Couples and Brian Curley were the team. So you're working with top people in the industry for producing new facilities and golf courses that, how do I put it, or, or second to none, you know, some of the tops in the country. Uh, and probably the thing that really was the most fun was putting a team together, hiring people that you know when you hire them, you're going to give them the, the highest compensation and the best work opportunity they've ever had in their life at that time. Yeah. That was fun. And then getting those excited people together to build a team, to deliver the experience. And you know, one of my proud proud things from my time with Sunrise was I had I was known for having very little turnover. Um, you know, so and you know, with Sunrise, I think I did one, two, three. I did seven or eight from scratch, and then I did about three from scratch on my own before Sunrise. And as I wow. look back at my career, that that was the fun part: building the courses, getting the clubhouses built, creating a team, getting them to meld together as one. And producing a world-class member, you know, customer golf experience. 
So you're going on those right from the start, from the dirt to building the course, to creating the club and getting it up and uh, standing up the club and getting that all organized. So it's really all elements, it sounds like. Yeah. And, and you know, I when I went to work for Bill Bone and the Sunrise Company, I was 38 years old. It was 1999. And I look back now and, you know, he gave me a great opportunity. I mean, I, you know, I, I learned about development. Home building. Um, you know, when I first went to work for Bill, I'll never forget we were, I've been working for him six months. And he goes, Hey, do you think you could start up the HOA? You've got some experience developing, you had your own company. I have no one on this Houston project that knows how to start up an HOA. So I've been working for Bill five months and I had to start up a homeowners association for wow. Royal Oaks Country Club in Houston, which is still there. <laughs> and, you know, so you got to do things. You know, there are times I did things I had no clue what I was doing, but you figure it out. That's awesome. So you were doing all that. Um, and then I think around what, 2004 ish, you end up going, moving to California for Toscana, right? Um, yeah. Basically, Bill said, look, we're, you know, and then by 2004, I had three projects in Vegas. I had one in California and one we were going to start. Um, we didn't buy the Colorado project, though, seven. You know, uh, I had Houston up and going for five years. Clubhouse was under construction, critical mass and membership. Uh, home sales were doing good. Um, and so it was time for me to go do the next project. And so Bill said, look, if you move to California, you're going to have a lot less travel because all you got is the one project in Texas. Everything else is in Nevada or California. Right. And so uh, I moved in August of 04 from Houston to Indian Wells. And, and actually Bill convinced me to buy a house at Toscana. And so my wife, Heidi and I lived on the fifth hole of the Toscana South course from whatever. Oh, I think we moved in in 05 until we sold it in 19 and I moved to Arizona. Wow. So, so you're doing all this and which is, sounds like a pretty full-time position, but at the same time, uh, just to go back to Texas for a minute before we go on to California, you're super involved in the PGA section. Um, and, yes, and sir. So, so what was sort of, you know, ultimately becoming president, I think in 98, uh, won a slew of awards in the section, including the PGA professional year in 2000. What sort of, with all this stuff going on with Sunrise and all the work you do, what made you um, also at the same time see, hey, it might be interesting to get involved in, in the uh, section activities? Well, I was always involved. I mean, I, I had held some position starting back with our Alamo chapter of the Southern Texas Section Assistance Association. So I was very involved in some kind of PGA government since 1986. You know, I was on the section board by the early 90s. And, and actually, I was elected secretary of the South Texas Section in 94. And so I've been going to the annual meetings for the National PGA since early 90s. Um, and my father is probably the main reason. Uh, my father was the insurance man of the year in three different decades in Louisiana. Wow. He was the president of the, Li the Life Underwriters. I don't know if you're familiar with that. No. He was uh, a CLU certified life underwriter. He okay. was um, a good friend of his, uh, Bob Mertz, who he ran his campaign, to, who ended up being the president for the national life underwriters. Uh, my father was, you know, he was the troop leader for the, when we were Cub Scouts. He was the troop leader for Boy Scouts. And as I tell everyone and has 
the added benefit of being the truth. My dad, my sister went to a private school. We all went to private high schools in New Orleans. This was the seventies and it was an interesting time. And, uh, my father was the president, a Jewish man of the Mount Carmel sisters of Mount Carmel Catholic high school. He was the president <laughs> of the mother's club. That's great. That's great. Because, because sister Mary Grace said, sister Mary Grace would go to my dad and said, Mike, you can help me get. So I was raised by a father that says, son, there's two options, not three. Most people think you can get involved. Okay. Yeah. Or, yeah, you don't get involved, but you kind of help out or you do nothing. He said, son, there's no middle. You're either part of the solution in life or part of the problem. And so he taught me by his activity and associations that not only do you get involved, but you're, you're active. You know, you want to have a say-so in the industry that you love and that you're part of and a say-so in the future of the industry. And as you get older, you understand it's not about you. It's about giving back to this great game and open up doors and opportunities for other individuals. And for me, my passion was always junior golf and employment. For me, it was a natural fit. If without junior golfers, we don't grow the game. Without growing the game, we don't have a job. And for the golf professionals, if they don't have a job, they can't feed their families. So that was kind of where my passion always intertwined. Got it. Got it. And I mean, obviously, this Southern Texas PGA is a pretty notable section. Um, lots of... Uh, well-known people in the game, you know, Jack Burke Jr. I was thinking of when I was getting ready to chat with you because, of course, he just turned 100. Um, but um, you must have come across some interesting folks during those years, I'm sure. Oh, very, very much so. I remember a meeting with Jack Burke, and I was the president of, like, the chapter. Mike Ray, who was our executive director, who now works for National PGA. It was me and Mike and two other – and. Uh, it was, I had a passion for creating our own junior golf program in South Texas. And at the time, the Southern Texas PGA uh, had no junior program, of which today, as we sit here today, it's one of the top two sections in America for junior golf. I think $3.5 million budget and almost 4,000 kids. Um, so I'm very proud to say that I was the passionate guy who kept pushing our section to say, look, the Houston Golf Association is run by the amateur body. They control junior golf. We get no credit for it. We don't have any say-so in it. We need to create our own junior golf program. And short story is we did. Uh, and Jack Burke was in that meeting, and I'll never forget it because Jack's like, Paul, you know, he's looking at me. And, of course, you're kind of intimidated sitting across from Jack Burke. Right. And he was very good friends with a lot of Houston Golf Association guys. And, of course, he was saying how we got to be very careful because you understand how this works. When you're at a member-owned club, a lot of times those Houston Golf Association guys, which are also maybe the United States Golf Association committee men right well they're usually very influential at your club and can have an impact on our golf professionals lives and contracts if that makes right. sense right you know so i remember that day because i was passionate that the pga we need to create our own program and break away from the hga it was a very interesting discussion that day i'll never forget it but the utmost respect for jack burke i had a really good friend tad weeks who was his golf pro for 20 something years and uh Used to love to go out there. I'll never forget one time we we're playing on a Monday. He says, you know the difference between you guys and my generation? <laughs> my generation, if you were an assistant pro or a club pro, man, you couldn't wait for Monday to go play 36 holes. He goes, nowadays, you guys want to go to the beach 
I'll never forget it. You know? and, and of course, Tad and I are like, no, Mr. Burke, we're out here playing 36 holes a day. We're not going to the beat. So he was a pistol and still is a pistol. And, yeah, he still and, is yeah. still. Yeah. And, and amazing. and wonderful that he you know, made it to 100. Te- Texas is, is really one of the great states for golf. I mean, look at Crenshaw, Hogan, Nelson, yeah. Tom Kite. I mean, look at the history of the game. Look at the uh, – and now I'm proud to say and was got to be a part of that the PGA's headquarters is in Frisco, Texas, which I think and is We're, we're cool. definitely going to get to that. But And the other thing I, I – you know, and, and obviously you made an impression on the section. I was impressed that we have the Levy Cup matches uh, that are now conducted there, right? Uh, after well, you? I was very fortunate. That's the North Texas and South Texas – so I, when I got elected president, we were in New York City. It was the 100-year anniversary of the PGA in 2016. And at the time, Tony Martinez, who's the president of North Texas, and Jeff Strong, who's the president of South Texas, good friends, they came to the mic at our annual meeting and announced that in honor of me becoming president, just like they had done for Mr. Black many years ago, and I got to play right. in those matches, yeah. uh, we're, we're creating the Levy Cup matches between North and South Texas annually. And it's the top six point getters in that's an A8. So you're a PGA member, but you're still an assistant pro. And then the top, okay. the top six point getters for senior PGA members. Got it. And I, I, we've done it now for six years and it's such a cool format. You got these young bucks with the old stalwarts of the section yeah. And, you know, it, it, it's more than just the game of golf because, you know, this business is about relationship. Yeah. And you see these young professionals with, you know, guys that I've known forever. Billy Harris, Ronnie Glanton from North Texas, great golf professionals. You know, Billy was at Dallas Country Club 30 something years. Ronnie is the gentleman that they're named the Ronnie after the little the little pitch and putt course, which is uh, right behind the North Texas headquarters at the new Frisco headquarters for the PGA. But I look at these professionals and what we did there and, you know, I could have never dreamed they would do something like that in my honor. And uh, it's very cool. It is very, very cool. So um, big marks left by you in the Southern Texas PGA section. You moved to California. You get involved with the Southern California PGA section. I know you were a director on the board of directors for a number of years out here. Um, uh, also, obviously, a pretty notable section out here. And um, But all along the way, you're getting involved at the national level, right? So you, you've touched upon that. Let's maybe talk a little bit about that. So you're president of the PGA, you become 2016, but that's after having served, you know, your two years as VP, your two years as secretary. Um, so lots of involvement there. Um, let's talk a little bit about what that was like. And and I know for sure, and you alluded to it a few times, one of the uh, things that would, must have been on your plate, given the time you were in office, was the whole relocation of the headquarters to Frisco. Um uh, what what was that like to sort of make that big decision to to move from Florida? And um, I know I haven't been out there, Paul, but I know from looking at the facility, it looks beautiful. Well, you know, two different things you brought up there. You know, my career in the national level, um, you know, it was just an organic evolution of my father telling me to be part of the solution, not the problem. Mm-hmm. So for me, after I had served south texas and then i was on the board of control for the national pga it was kind of the next natural step 
Um, you know, I ran in 2010 and lost, ran again in 2012 and won. And we, the day I got elected is the first day Pete Bavacqua was our new CEO of the PGA of America. Ah, okay. Pete, of course, is now the chairman of NBC Sports. Right. And so Pete was my CEO for the PGA my entire time as an officer until the last like 45 days. Um, and so I look at, you know, Pete is someone I think did a great job for us. And so for me, the natural progression of getting involved, getting elected, and, it, and it's a task. I mean, you go through, you know, I politic for three years. I mean, you, you go to all over the country, you meet with sections, you meet with districts, you meet with the leaders, and, you know, you basically spend your time and money to convince people to, uh, you know, support you to be an officer. Right. Uh, we're truly a member owned and run association board of directors, chairman of the boards of PGA president. And of course our CEO, Pete Bavacqua, now Seth law report to the board and our officers. So early on, one of the things I found out when I first became an officer, we were in a meeting, we had two buildings at headquarters. You ever been to our headquarters in Florida? I, I haven't. I know where they are, but I haven't been inside. Well, where one, they of were. Them, one of them we own, one we leave. And being that I've kind of spent a life on the real estate slash club side, I was kind of, I was like, we're, we're paying how much to lease this building for 20 years? <laughs> so um, that's the businessman in me. My father taught me that. And so, you know, with Pete and with my fellow officers, we started saying, hey, you know, we need to sell that building or buy the building or figure out the home site. But it really evolved into a discussion. What opportunities are there out there in the country for us to move? Who would be willing, for lack of putting it in a better word, to participate financially if we move? Right. Do, right. do they see enough benefit where, you know, and we, we had meetings with the state of Arizona. We met with Charlotte. We put out an RFP. We hired a firm and had several cities make bids. And as time went on, it got down to where the serious bidders were maybe, you know, West Palm Beach, uh, Palm Beach, Florida, that area, some things going on down there trying to keep us. And then we had the opportunity with Frisco. And the Frisco opportunity is one that organically just happened because the North Texas PGA was looking to build a little like nine hole kids golf course. They, the city of Frisco was interested and they literally came to us, the North Texas PG and said, look, this is a lot bigger than us. We think this could be a huge deal. And so I was a big champion for that. Obviously people are used to golf being in Florida. A lot of our professionals in the Northeast and up North, they're used to going to Florida in the winter. And as I shared with everyone, I was pushing for us to look at this opportunity, not because I'm from Texas, which I'm a, I'm a born Louisiana boy, although I spent 20 years in Texas it's because of the opportunity to partner with Omni, the city of Frisco, 36 holes championship golf. We're going to host 20 something major championships the next 20 years on facilities that we manage. They're owned by the city. Um, every apprentice or now we call associate in America that has to go to PGA for education. They've been going to Port St. Lucie up in the middle of nowhere. Right. It's an hour from our headquarters. They never see headquarters. They don't see our operation at headquarters. Right. Right. Now they'll be able to walk through this beautiful building, shake hands with Seth Law, our CEO, John Easterbrook, our chief membership officer. When they go for their education, they're right there at PGA headquarters. It's a central part of the country. You can fly yeah. one flight anywhere in the country. You can oh, get for, Dallas, with, yeah, with DFW, yeah, you're, you're for yeah. sure. West yeah. Palm Beach, West Palm Beach, you have to like, you know, 
you had to like hit the orange ball in the yellow hole and have the gator mouth open up for you to get the West Palm. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. From a travel standpoint, there's no doubt about it. And it, and it looks spectacular. I mean, the golf course, well, I've just seen pictures. It looks great. And the thing that I'm more excited about is the building. It, it's 110,000 square foot. It reeks of our love of the PGA game of golf, our PGA professionals, our love of growing the game. You can go in and see this wall and touch and see every member's story. Uh, you know, there's there's uh, putting and pitching areas inside the building. They open up to the driving range, which goes right out to the range where you're going to be having PGA championships and Ryder Cups eventually. Um, I don't know. I just, I think it's really exciting that we're there. We're now up and we're open. And uh, we kind of see it as what's going to be the new central home of golf in America. And it's more than just the two golf courses that are going to have tournaments there. It's really about building a culture, elevating the PGA brand. Uh, you know, a lot of people don't understand the difference between the PGA Tour, the PGA of America, you know, you know how that goes. Yeah, I know. That's a source of confusion for a lot of people. I realize that, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll be able to co-op programs with the GCSAA, education. Uh, we'll be able to do things on site. I mean, you really need to get up there and see this place too. It's it's really something special. It, it's all about the game of golf. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, I, 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 um, Next time I'm in Dallas area, I'm definitely going to try to get up there. It it, it looks amazing. Um, and that certainly had to be one big part of what you did it, uh, it during your time with the PGA. Another thing, and again, just knowing the time that the time period you were in office and what was going on at that point in time was the Ryder Cup. I mean, that's such a huge asset of the PGA. And of course, you know, folks who listen to this show know that after the loss, I guess it was in 2014, if I'm remembering right in Scotland, you know, right. there was this discussion of having this Ryder Cup and we did have this Ryder Cup task force to try to sort of right the ship uh, for, for the U.S. team. Um, maybe talk a little about that and what your what involvement you may have had with the task force and, and, and uh, how all that went. Well, that was my first Ryder Cup as a PGA officer. Uh, you know, Tom Watson was captain. Right. Um, we had, uh, at that time, you know, Ted Bishop was our president. Right. And when I got elected, Ted told me, he says, hey, Lee, do you know how the Ryder Cup captain's picked? And I said, yeah, Ted, I do. And he said, well, you know, Derek and I are planning to make Tom Watson the Ryder Cup captain. And, uh, and I knew at the time, it was going to make him the oldest Ryder Cup captain ever. In fact, if you look at the stats, other than Tom in 2014 when he was, I don't know, what was he at the time? I can't remember. 62, whatever. Yeah, I think there he was, was never born in 50, so he would have been, yeah, like 63-ish or four. Yeah, yeah. He, I think he was born in 48. Oh, was it 48? I, yeah, I always think, I think of him as... I think he, I think he's September 4, 48, if I go from memory. Okay, you could be right. I always, think of, I always think of Palmer, Nicholas, and Watson as all a decade apart because Jack's 1940 yeah. and Palmer was 30, but you could be right. But in that neighborhood but, anyways. But the point being that it, it was, you know, it was an interesting Ryder Cup. And then, of course, that day when we had the press conference, it was tough. You know, I mean, yeah. you had Nicholson sitting at one end and, 
And so on the plane coming back, we're on the plane, you know, with the players and, and Pete Bavacqua and Garrick Sprague and I remember us getting up and we were walking, we we're talking, saying, man, we got to, we have to do something, you know, and one of the things we talked about and we knew it, we needed to give the players more ownership because remember, they have no say so in the Ryder Cup captain. That's been, that's picked by the PGA president basically. Or So that's when we came up with the idea of the task force. We got home, created the task force. And there were nine people on the original task force. It was Pete Bavacqua, Derek Sprague, myself. It was, I'm going to see if I get them right. It was Ray Floyd, Tom Lehman, Steve Stricker, Ricky Fowler, Phil Mickelson, and Tiger Woods. Mm. So that was the nine people on the task force. That evolved into the Ryder Cup committee. The last meeting we had, we were at the Bridges of Rancho Santa Fe, I'll never forget. And that's when we consummated the deal and said, here's how we're going to govern the Ryder Cup going forward. So the task force was a task force. It was a one and done. The, the goal of the task force was analyze everything about the Ryder Cup, especially how we pick the captain and how can we get the players more involved? How can we be more successful? You know, how do we, uh, you know, the Europeans had already had a good program where, you know, what I would call pipeline, we call them pipelines. So people that you knew could eventually be a Ryder Cup captain. You know, it's like Zach. We, we knew 10 years ago, Zach was in that pipeline to maybe be a Ryder Cup captain. In that meeting, we put names on the board. We looked at it. We, we kind of went down the road. And the idea was for the Ryder Cup committee going forward, you'd have two PGA officers, the sitting PGA CEO, and three players. And that's what the Ryder Cup committee is now. We wanted to get vice captains in the pipeline that eventually would probably be captains. Where in the old days, you know, you look at Tom Watson, when he was captain in 94, the last time we won on foreign soil, to be quite frank. Um, his assistant captain was Stan Thirsk, the golf pro at Kansas City Country Club. Right. Tom, Tom White's assistant cap, Tom Kite's assistant captain was, uh, oh, Buddy Antonopoulos' brother. Oh, come on. Up at Kays Valley. Oh, the other Antonopoulos. I just went brain dead. But my point being, you know, we said, look, we need to come up with a better system. And this wasn't we, the officers. This was in conjunction with these great players. What do we do to give better ownership? And that's really what our heart was at. And I think, you know, of course, you know, knock on wood, we won 16 and we lost 18. And then some people are always like, oh, yeah, so much for the task force and committee. Ah, but we won 21. If we win this one, we're three out of four. I'd like to think that maybe vindicates it. And all we were trying to do is reach out to the players and say, hey, let's work better together as a team. We haven't done as good a job of that as we could. We want to give y'all a voice. We want to partner better with you, the players. And I think you see that now today in the Ryder Cup committee. Yeah, no, that all makes sense. I, I have to ask you one thing, because this has always been a curious thing to me about the Ryder Cup on the U.S. team. So in for, for Europe, Typically, they've had someone who they get a good captain and that person's captain for multiple Ryder Cups. Um, and we typically don't seem to have done that as much. Um, you know, I mean, I think of Tony Jacklin all the years, you know, Sam Torrance. I mean, they were multiple captains. I mean, we seem to sort of spread it around a little more. I mean, there must have been some discussion, I, I imagine, about that, because that seems like a different approach. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because if you look back and it's I'm in my house looking at the Ryder Cup captains, it's a piece they gave me that all the <laughs> living ones signed. OK, OK. So if you look at it, you got Watson, who did it twice. 
Nicholas did it twice and Arnie did it twice. Yeah. Okay. Jack Burke did it twice. Sneed did it three times. Hogan did it three times. Hagen was captain, I think, four or five times. Yeah, you're going back a little in history, but that's yeah. fair. So, yeah. so in the old days, we did some of that. And I think, and I can't speak for anyone, but this is just my, how do I put it, my take. Yeah. Being a Ryder Cup captain is like one of the most, the highlights of your career. If you're an American PGA Tour player, getting to be a Ryder Cup captain, I would think ranks up there in the top two or three things you could do. Yeah. And I can tell. I mean, I know I got to make the call to Jim Purick the day that we gave Jim the captain, and I'll never forget it. He was speechless. I mean, I remember calling Zach. When we just said, Zach, we want you to be part of the Ryder Cup committee. So Zach was the first guy we put on the new Ryder Cup committee from the old okay. task force. That wasn't on the old task force. These guys love their country. They love the, they love the Ryder Cup, okay? You look at the Ryder Cup itself, the captaincy. Would it make sense to say, okay, strict one, let's have him do two or three more? I think you got to look at, I don't know if this is the right way to say it, spread the wealth, but it's such a great honor. Yeah. And there's so many people deserving. I mean, like right now, we've got, I can tell you, two people that a lot of people will tell you were left out of the mix. You know, the old Larry Nelson story. Yeah, the Larry Nelson story is famous, right? Or, or it gets written about a lot. But tell me, who do you kick out? Who didn't deserve it? Crenshaw? Kite? Watkins? Stockton, Curtis Strange, Hal Sutton. Who didn't deserve it of that group? It's hard. It's hard. There it's hard. It's hard. It's you know what, Paul. I, I I totally hear you. It's hard. I will tell you. I just the uh, there's the, only the counter, so many spots. I get there are so many, so spots. many spots. There are. It is. I think the counterpoint, and I and I not know what I'm not saying. This is the right answer, and I totally hear what you're saying. Is there are certain captains. At least, and I'm looking at it from the public standpoint. I'm not nearly in the inside, obviously, like you are, but from the public standpoint, who seem like they really made a difference, you know. And and you know, Paul the Azinger. one that Paul Azinger, Paul right? That's you knew where I was going. I mean, the whole pod system and what he did at Valhalla and stuff. I mean, that seemed to really click. And and you know, that's the one I you 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 read where I was going. That's the one that I always thought, gee, you know there's a guy that seems to kind of, you know, have a method and an approach that resonates and is successful. And that's the well, one look I was at Stricker. Thinking. Look at Stricker. Yeah. And, and Steve a, was did, great. He, yeah. He did a great job. Okay. Yeah, he did. How do you maybe consider him for next time? So again, yeah. I think it really boils down to spreading the wealth a little bit, um, you know, recognizing as many of these great golfers to give them this, which I'm very proud to say, being a PGA professional, that the Ryder Cup means as much to us as it does to these players. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, it's it's a fantastic I, event. Yeah, I, I, for one, look at the PGA Championship and the Ryder Cup, at the value of those events for our 28, 29,000 men and women out there, you can't quantify it. Because what it no. does is it's kind of it's kind of one of those things that interconnects us, the club pro, with the professional game, and it, it gives us an opportunity to showcase. I mean, go look at all these great players. There's always a PGA professional behind. Yeah, all, all, name one: Rick Sessinghouse with um, or, or, or or Randy Smith I mean, with um, oh, with uh, Scheffler, Scheffler. I mean, and, and Justin. Yeah. You know, Randy Smith. 
one of my, Randy's a good friend. I love Randy to death. He's as good as they come. And he's the only guy, the only guy in America that's ever coached two Ryder Cuppers from the time they're six years old and they never took lessons from anyone else. Wow. Justin, that's Leonard, great. Justin Leonard, Justin Leonard and Scotty Shepard. That's a good nugget. I, that, I wouldn't have thought about that, but that's a great one. I love that. No, he's, he's obviously tremendous. Um, very, very cool. Look, before I, I Ryder Cup is such a great topic. Before I leave it, let me, I got to ask you one other thing about it, just to get your yeah. thoughts on this. With Liv um, and and what's going on, I mean, that's on the other side for Europeans. I mean, you have any thoughts on that, whether that should be something that uh, yeah. those folks, I'm curious what you think about it, because it's been such a great event and so competitive. And obviously, particularly on the European side, I mean, that's a lot of their team. Uh, is I'm, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to say on this one, I'm not going to comment. Here's why. Yeah, it's an ongoing hot, it's an ongoing hot subject right now. There are legal issues pending. They've yeah. dragged the PGA of America in it. Yeah. And with that being said, and knowing that I sat in that chair, I defer to our current president, John Lindert. I defer to Seth Law, our CEO, to speak on behalf of this association. And I have my own personal views, but I'll keep them to myself. Fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, and uh, Just because it's such a hot subject right now with litigation <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, and yeah, I'm, and look, and you're talking to a guy who loves this country. I'll leave it at that. Yeah, I hear you. I got it. Um let me sort of talk a little bit or, or just ask you a little bit about um, some of the other things, because you had such a long, distinguished career at, at the national level with PGA of America. Um, the employment consulting arm, the executive search stuff, maybe, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about your interest in those areas. That seemed to be another significant aspect of your career there, if I'm reading it right. It was, you know, my, my uh, I, I kind of was pushing probably 15 years ago that our employment service, the PG of America, we were more of a job placement service for our professionals and maybe not always a recruiting service for the club or the employer. Does that make sense? Yeah. And I, I was very passionate that the more we bridge that, the better we are even to our member. When a job comes open, we want the best PGA professional to get the job for the most money. Does that surprise you that I said that? No. <laughs> that makes sense. If you're a lawyer, you want the best lawyer to get the job for the best pay or you know whatever, right? Right. So for me, I was always passionate about employment because probably back to my father getting involved and, 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 and trying to, you know, I was passionate about trying to show the value of our PGA professionals. I was passionate. You know, my first time I was a GM and pro is 1988. So mm -hmm. I go way back. I've been passionate about getting more of our professionals to move from general management, uh, from you know traditional golf operations to general management. You know, when you're 58 years old and you lose your job as a golf pro, it's hard to get hired back at 58 as a golf pro, but it's not hard to get hired back as a general manager. So, you know, I was very passionate about getting our professionals to understand kind of the natural timeline of their career. This might be a step for you to that point today. When I ran for office, we had like 280 general managers in the PGA. Today, we have over 2,300, I'm proud to say. Yeah, it's interesting. So, I, I've been noticing that. I mean, you know, I know now, we, both, we know, both know someone like, you know, just to pick a name, like a Rob Oosterhaus, who yep. kind of did that kind of migration you're talking about. And I'm, I see that more and more with pros. And Rob's a great example. So Rob's like me. We started out as PGA professionals. We joined the CMAA. We're also members of the Club Manager Association of America. They have great education for the ongoing, especially for the for like a Rob, who's the 
general manager, chief operating officer of a member-owned club. Much different than working for a city or working for an individual who owns a private club or working for a municipality. All the nuances of understanding the 501c7 world, you know. Right. Uh, navigating the board of directors. You have a different boss every year. You know, all of that. So, right. yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of our professionals organically or consciously or whatever you want to say in the back of their mind, knowing that as they move into these type of roles and they've got the number one position overseeing the club, not only does it give them better control over their destiny, but it helps them as a leader have better input over everyone at their facility, including the PGA profession. And, you know, I'm, I'm passionate about our PGA professionals uh, having a better living, having a better quality of life. Absolutely. And, you know, that actually is a good segue into one other uh, uh, kind of related thing I wanted to ask you about. I'm sure you must have seen the Golf Digest article that came out probably a year ago or so about the life of the PGA Club Pro and assistance. And it was kind of painted a rather dark picture. Um, and I'm just curious, because you're perfect person to, I think, ask this for, how do you sort of see that um, life today, if you were talking to someone in, you know, their early 20s who wanted to have a, a career as a, a club pro, kind of how do you see that life today? And what what advice would you give such a person? Well, let, let, let's say a couple of things. One, the article in Golf Digest, I was quoted in it. So, um, and okay, I, I, I forgot I, that. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I was one of the byline quotes. And I think what I said is if people stick their head in the sand on this one, yeah, they're going to get left. They're going to get left by the wayside. I think was my exact comment. And what I mean by that is this: I'm 62. I've worked in the golf business or club business since I was 16. Unfortunately, I'm not blaming the business, but I went through a divorce after 20 years, and I can tell you, I was never home. I worked 80, 90 hours a week. I was always at the golf course. I was, you know, my priority was my job, and I do think. That part of that's generational. I'm 62, Larry. I'm the end of the baby boomers. You yeah. know, we, we we wore our badge of courage on how much we worked. I walked 10 miles of school right. in the snow, uphill, into the wind. You didn't have to do that, Larry. <laughs> right? Right, right, right. Yeah. So I do say this. I think the work-life balance thing is important. I think clubs have to wake up and realize that they need to spend more money on payroll. I mean, I see clubs all the time. You know, they, they don't have enough help if they want to deliver that experience, you know, and, and also you look at the hospitality side all over America, the hospitality industry is hurting. We're part of that hospitality industry. So all I'd like to add is this. I do think employers, clubs, everyone today need to be a little more conscious of their team members, their employees, the people who give them this great place to go every day to get away deliver this wonderful member experience. They just need to give a little more attention and think about the people that work with them long-term and think about if I want these people to stay here 20 years, what can we do to make their life better and quit having some unrealistic expectations. Now, don't get me wrong. I still say the guys who work and gals who work the hardest are going to probably do the best, but I do think there's an expectation we've set, you know, America still to this day, Go, people work for a company 20 years, they have two or three weeks vacation. Go to Europe, they got six to eight weeks vacation. Right, right. You know, we, we don't value the personal and family time. And I'll, I'll go on the record and say, 
I look at my experiences in my life, and I think that's something I don't care if you're in the golf business, the country club business, the widget business, the plumbing business. You got to pay attention to that today. Yeah, that's well said. Um, very as very for helpful. as as for that young professional getting yeah. into business. Yeah, I would I would tell them that I, I wish I was 27. I don't think there's ever been a more exciting time to get in the golf business. One, we're booming. You know, and everyone keeps expecting. Like I looked at Coppenheim, uh, you know, uh, Pellison's report yesterday. Yeah. And everyone keeps expecting the numbers to fall off. Oh, come on. This was driven by the pandemic. Well, guess what? Things are sticking. Yeah. Things aren't falling off like people thought. New golf development is out there. I would tell that young person, look, you're entering a great time in this industry. Get as much education as you can. And as Stephen Covey says, start with the end in mind. And leaders like me, your podcast, the PGA, just the industry, as they come across people, we need to show them the real life stories that, yeah, you're not working for a lot of money. You're an assistant pro and you're making 30000 or whatever the number is today. Nowadays, you know, gosh, some of the top clubs are paying their first assistance base salaries of 75000 It's a different world today. But the point I'm making Show them what their career can be. You know, in the old days, you're the golf pro and you wanted to get a job at New Orleans Country Club and then you just tried to keep that job for 30 years. Just like you went to work for IBM or you went to work for Ford. Right. You were 23 and you retire at 60 with a pension, your 401k, Social Security. What's well, a different world today? People don't spend 30 years somewhere. You know, uh, and especially you look at the millennials, all right? Quality of life is very important so I think when it's all said and done, these young professionals understand where they can go. Understand one of the things we passed during my time as president is the three career paths, saying that we've got three distinct career paths. And you can kind of do parts of all three. But for the most part, you're either going to be a player teacher, excuse me, a coach teacher. Not that you can't be a traditional golfer and you give lessons, but the three career paths, teaching and coaching, golf operations, traditional golf professional or executive management, general manager, chief operating officer. Maybe you're going to be the chairman of Titleist one day. Maybe you're going to be Dana Garmy and be the chairman of Troon with 600 golf courses. Right, right. <laughs> I, I think the opportunities in executive management and teaching and coaching are really, really where the biggest opportunities are today. There'll always be the need for the traditional golf professional, but those jobs, the Oakmont, the Southern Hills, Kerry Cosby, those jobs are few and far between. The yeah. golf pro now only owns about 7% of the shops in America. So yeah, look at the, look at the organic progression of your career. Think about what you want to do, where you could be. General management's not for everyone. I wouldn't expect every PGA pro to move into general management, but we've gone from 280 since I started paying attention to 2300, you know, go find, go buy, build your own golf course. Think out of the box. It's your love of the game is why you got in the business get as much education and when you can, if you have that opportunity to get in the business for yourself, whether that's your own teaching business, owning your own golf course or whatever, I encourage everyone out there as time goes on to look at that because that's where the true freedom comes from working for yourself. Now that is really well said. Um, let me ask you, I just listen, I, this is great. I love listening to your thoughts on the, I mean, when you think of growing the game or the game progressing and thinking outside the box, as you said, I mean, what strikes me as just an observer is the popularity of 
what I guess I will call some non-traditional golf things, you know, top golf, right. Or five iron. I mean, these, these, I mean, do you see a lot of growth in that? Cause I mean, I, top golf is amazing to me. I went to top golf for the first time uh, a couple of months ago and I was amazed how much fun it was. And I mean, I'm curious what you sort of think of those, I'll call them non-traditional golf experiences. Cause that seems to be capturing a lot of people's imagination. Well, all right. Here's a here's a 60 second sidebar. I'm running for office. Okay. My good friend Glenn Lee, who was the director of golf and general manager at Escalante in the Hill Country at the time. Now he's at Adios, the the men's club in Boca Raton Adios Golf Club. Yeah. So you know you're on the campaign trail. So I'm I'm in the room in front of the president, vice president, secretary of like eight or nine sections. You know, North Texas, South Texas, Gulf states, Sun Country, which is New Mexico and El Paso and so he's going to throw me the softball question, right? So my good friend Glenn goes, Paul, what do you think of this top golf? <laughs> now, this is 2010, I think. And I look from, and this is just who I am. I'm not, I'm not good at bullshitting people. I'm always going to call a spade a spade. And I said, well, my good friend Glenn, you stumped me. What is Top Golf? I didn't know what Top Golf was. At the time. <laughs> now you got to remember, there was only four of them at the time. Yeah, that's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, and of course they started in Texas. You had the one in uh, Houston, and so spin forward. I get elected to office in 2012, and you know, Pete. I went to Pete and said, Pete, we really need to get to know these guys. You know, I mean. Wouldn't it be nice if a PGA professional was the general manager event? Yeah, running exactly. That's why I brought it up. Right. Would, wouldn't it be nice to have every director of instruction at Top Golf have PGA behind their name? So we consciously built that relationship with Top Golf and got to know Tom Dundon, who was the money guy originally. And, you know, Pete and I actually went to Dallas and spent two days there with some of their people. And then as I become an officer, People ask you, hey, Paul, what do you think of Top Golf? Is, is it really growing the game? It's not really golf. I'm going to say this. My wife loves it when you bring up an old TV commercial. And, you know, the owner has a first name. It's OSCAR. Well, that's Oscar <laughs> Hot Dogs. She always would say, yeah, it's corny, but it worked. You still remember it. So you understand where I'm going with this. Yeah, totally. Yeah. At the end of the day, Top Golf has doubled the amount of golfers in this country and the other things that go with it, but I give most of the credit to Top Golf. We have 40 million golfers in America now. We have more million, more golfers that are non-green grass, people who go to Top Golf, people who go to golf tech and just work on their game and don't really play the game much. So yeah, I think it's been unbelievable for the game. I think we'll be able to track success stories. I remember a report we got four years ago that showed the natural gyration of people going to a Top Golf and then wanting to play golf and moving into the green grass space. I think that a hundred years from now, you'll look back and say the top golf phenomenon combined with the pandemic that occurred really helped grow the game of golf. I, I'm very bullish on top golf. I'm very bullish on anything that puts a golf club in your hand. And I think for those people who think, well, top golf's not really golf. If you love this great game, it is introducing more people to the game who would have never, ever, ever been introduced to it. How is that? Bad? No, that's awesome. And that's, and as I said, you know, we, I, we went to this, we actually had an SCGA meeting at Top Golf, which is why I, I'm on the board of the SCGA, which is why I was there. And, you know, it was the middle of the 
week, Paul, um, in the middle of the day at El Segundo, which is they have a facility out there yep. near LAX. And I couldn't believe how crowded it was. It was jammed. Um, and uh, so I, I totally agree with you. Anything that puts a, a club in someone's hand is a good thing. Let me just sort of get you out of here on this. Just maybe just tell us you, such an incredible career, kind of what you're up to now. I, I think you're with KKNW and, you know, doing some search stuff. And and um, I, I saw this PKL Golf Company, which is some management and club services. What are you up to these days? Well, you know, we moved up here to the mountains. I kind of took it easy for a couple of years. And then President Biden called me on the hotline and said, uh, watch the economy the next two years. You might want to go back to work. <laughs> so I'm back working pretty much full time. Um, I uh, and I mean that sincerely. I don't mean that from a levity point of view. Um, I am now working full time again, and I'm really enjoying it. I'm, I'm doing search for KKW. I'm an independent consultant. I do their director of golf PGA searches, and I do general manager searches. My first year, I started in March, and I think I did 12 searches. It's so rewarding. And and, wow. and Coplin Cabler Wallace, Dick Coplin started the firm in the 90s, and and they were the gold standard in the search business. When I was passionately telling my fellow board members, or even before that, when I was detection president, and I was telling Joe Starenka and the leaders at the time, say, hey, we have got to move more aggressively in the search business in the PGA. We need to be able to compete with a Coplin and Keebler. I'd use them as the gold standard. So, yeah. um, you know, and of course, we place more general managers at high-end clubs in the country than anyone. So uh, working with Dick and Kurt and Tom, all three operators in the industry, like myself, they were all, you know, Dick was the general manager at Desert Islands, Desert Mountain, PGA West. Tom was at uh, Oakmont and Mediterra. Kurt was at Loxahatchee. He ended his career at Isleworth. Pretty nice clubs. So Yeah, that's a pretty uh, good roster right there. <laughs> yeah, so it's really been a great fit, and they allow me to do my other stuff that I do with PKL. I still have some you know, consulting contracts I do. Uh, actually, I've, one of the things I've been wanting to do is buy a little golf course somewhere just to have – kind of another investment in the portfolio, but it's something that feeds to my expertise. And my son, who's a major in the army at Fort Bragg, he also has two or three businesses, has already built uh, three rent houses. We've been looking at a golf course in the Carolinas. And so I intend to keep my hand in golf. Uh, Copland, Keebler, Wallace, it's a great place for me to make a difference in people's lives and working with a great firm. And, uh, and again, I'm available for any other help in the golf industry. So I appreciate your asking. That's awesome. Well, listen, Paul, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you um, spending time with us today and um, just congratulations again. I know it's, you know, you, you've still got chapters to write, but it, uh, so I don't mean to close the book, but I mean, just congratulations on what has been just a tremendous career. Well, thank you. And God bless you and your listeners. And uh, all I'd like to leave this one thought with everyone, get out there and chase the ball. You know, it's uh I had a sister pass away about two weeks ago. And it, anytime yeah. something like that happens in your life, what does it make you do? It makes you realize how precious life is. And as we get into our 60s, you know, the clock's ticking. So, you know, I'm planning to play more golf this year than I played last year. I still love playing the game. And I just want to remind the listeners, playing this great game is what it's all about. Great, great advice. And I and you and I are the same age, so I'm taking that to heart. So um, I try to play more myself. Paul, thank you so much. God bless. Thank you.